When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Outward Slate's podcast about queer lives, politics, culture, and this month, lots of cute and flirtatious extras. I am Jules Gill Peterson, and I actually spent the first few weeks of this Pride Month recovering from some very lovely plastic surgeries. So I guess I was kind of keeping faith with trans girl culture, even though I was chilling at home. Um, but now that my doctor's released me, I'm very excited to get out of the house and hang out with you all in this little bonus episode. As we mentioned back in May, all throughout June, we're bringing you extra Shorter Pride episodes each week on Wednesdays, in addition to our usual big show. And Christina, Brian, and I each picked our own subjects and guests for these. The lineup is just wonderful. This is actually episode three. So if you haven't already listened to the first two, I just want to highly recommend uh, afterwards you go and devour them immediately. You'll be very happy you did. If you're a regular listener to the show, or honestly, if you just like have to make it in this cursed world, you know things have been monumentally bad for trans people. And honestly, not just in the U.S. and many different places in the world, but here in this country, a staggering 500 plus pieces of anti-trans legislation introduced in 49 states have been hanging over 2023 like some kind of giant thunderstorm. And actually, at this point, over 80 of those bills have been signed into law. Some of them take away our legal access to transition by banning or even criminalizing gender-affirming care. Others push us out of public by prohibiting us from using bathrooms, banning us from playing in some organized sports, using the pretense of drag to regulate where we can appear in public, in what kinds of clothes, what sorts of work we can do. And some of them just remove all recognition of us from the law by declaring that quote-unquote biological sex is defined by, and you, you really can't make this shit up, the size of your gametes. Ew. Okay. The point is, the incitement to target, harass, and increasingly just wield violence against trans people that's grown along all of these political attacks has had pretty devastating impacts. And honestly, there's no sign of reprieve on the horizon. If anything, I think a lot of us are worried it's just going to get worse. And so I'm really actually very happy uh, to be joined by Evan Urquhart, a stellar journalist and the founder of Assigned Media, which is a news site dedicated to daily coverage of anti-trans propaganda and its effects, which I just highly, highly, highly recommend. Um, Evan is also one of Slate's own, and he has a piece uh, out in Outward's Not Quite Pride series, the one that Brian talked about in our full-length June episode. So Evan took on the daunting task for this series of writing about despair, Uh, and he had this brilliant idea to go out and talk to five trans people who he had never met before uh, about how they're dealing with despair. So we ended up having kind of five really rich and distinct conversations with trans people from different walks of life that he wrote about. 
And they all kind of talked about how they're processing, but maybe also politicizing their feelings. And so I'm excited that Evan made time for one more conversation about those conversations, and this time with moi. So Evan, thank you so much for coming on Outward during this especially inglorious Pride Month. Thank you so much for having me. And I am glad, like with my piece, to just talk frankly, uh, not try and put a happy face on a pretty, you know, scary time right now. Yeah, exactly. That does feel like the task of the day, doesn't it? I mean, to give us a little bit of background, you know, you wanted to kind of write about despair. That's something you'd been thinking about maybe for a while. And so what sort of brought you to this piece? And um, why did you decide you wanted to talk to people who you didn't know or had never met? So I first got the idea to write about uh, trans despair, I think almost two years ago, um, Mm. because it was the current that I was seeing in the community and I didn't feel like the mainstream was aware at all. And so this year, it's close enough to the mainstream's understanding of what's going on that the time was right. I think the reason that I wanted to talk to people I hadn't spoken to before was largely that I wanted to kind of really drive home that this is the queer community, this is the trans community, this isn't just me and my friends, you know, Mm. in some kind of bubble. So I really stretched to talk to people who I hadn't before. And as soon as I put the call out on Mastodon, actually, there were more people than I could talk to instantly. This was not something that people were having any difficulty Mm. understanding what I was wanting to talk about or why. And the conversations were like nothing I have ever had before trying to do a story. They were so deep and so rich and very different Mm -hmm. from each other, but with, you know, with so much common ground. You know, you say you're having conversations, but a lot of times in journalism, you're kind of seeking for a quote, but it really felt like a back and forth. And like we were just kind of trying to face and process what we're all feeling and and how you go forward when the kind of hope you had had is is something you're kind of having to let go of Mm. of the conversations that you had with five different people what were some of the common themes that emerged what flame has gone out or is flickering you know in the past couple of years but also like their reactions to that experience what what were the common threads the things that were kind of recurring from conversation to conversation yeah so i think everyone or almost everyone mentioned climate change and mentioned Hmm. the situation with race in america as being you know, sort of connected to a broader despair that is there's a very personal Mm. like, do I need to move? Is my healthcare going Mm. to be illegal? And then there is a sort of broader sense of does politics even work? Can we even expect positive Mm. change um, that everyone kind of related to? Another theme that I think every single person talked about focusing on the people who are in your life and getting each other through this and kind of narrowing some of your expectations down to who is there for me, how can I make it through a a dark time and having that narrowing of scope being really difficult to accept, but there being kind of a new smaller hope in getting your own kids through this or, you know, getting your partner through this or living with other queer people. So I think those were the two things that were really everyone was talking about. Yeah, that kind of really stood out to me when I was reading. Not not because it surprises me, because I feel like I also think and talk this way with the people in my life. When the topic of conversation is like the situation that us LGBTs are facing, it's like the first things we start talking about are like, 
yeah, you know, like debt <laughs> and climate change and like these things that aren't necessarily the hot button bills or civil rights or whatever. It's so interesting, the expansiveness and also how many of the people you talk to were like very clear that the shock is not without context, maybe, you know, long term structures of oppression in the United States that, you know, coil around race and class are really sort of the environment in which homophobia and transphobia fester or grow in the first place. And so the terms that I'm used to saying, like being shocked, being startled, right, don't even fully capture that this kind of wisdom that I felt like everyone you were talking to was like kind of sharing with you that like, they both felt simultaneously shocked and also like not at all. Does that, is that something that you felt like you were hearing from folks? Yeah, I think there was a real range. There was one person that I felt with who was really feeling the abandonment, mm. the feeling that no one's doing anything, no one's stopping this. Why aren't all our allies, you know, rallying behind us? And that was something that was really resonant to how I felt two years ago. And then, you know, I think there were other people who were much more in that yep, no one's going to show up for us. So we just have to, you know, find a way to get through this ourselves. We have to find a way to leave something behind for young people who are growing mm. up in red states to find. We have to try and be gentle with ourselves and, mm. and not give in to kind of the worst of the despair and just find a way to live with a reality that you don't want to accept. You don't want to say, oh, things are getting worse. Now I have to put myself in that picture. I have to put myself in maybe decades of a kind of contracting when I've just lived through decades that felt like they were expanding for the queer community, for the trans community. We'll be back with more conversation with Evan Burkhart after this short break. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back. I'm chatting with Evan Burkhart about his new piece on despair uh, and how queer and trans people are processing it right now. You know, I really kind of struck by something you were saying earlier about kind of how we're trying to find a narrative place for ourselves, sort of put ourselves into a historical arc. But you mentioned in particular the generational form that that takes, and I think especially trans adults, our own investment in kind of a figure of the trans child. And obviously the right and anti-trans forces have kind of been enjoying a certain monopoly on their, their moral panics and fantasies around trans kids. And I think oftentimes it feels hard to have our own investments in trans youth because like we're being told to stay far away from them or that they don't exist or they don't matter. But there's also this kind of sense of like, okay, the emergency going on right now, what are we going to do for these kids right this second who are suffering? Um, but also like what it means to imagine how queer and especially trans youth will grow up. I mean, can you talk to me a little bit about this kind of weird feeling of nostalgia that you're going through right now where it's like, well, 
did I think it was going to be so much better for queer and trans kids like a few years ago? And is that what's burning out? Or, you know, was I wrong to think that? Is that just a reaction I'm creating now? I mean, just just tell me a little bit about like sort of how, what that means to you um, and how you're sort of you're moving through it right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that I talked to a lot of parents of trans youth as part mm. of my reporting, and I really do try to stress to them that the positive is that the trans adults who are alive now did make it. I grew up in a time, you know, I always use Boys Don't Cry as the kind of um, touch point. Yeah. I was graduating from college when Boys Don't Cry came out, and that was oh, that was the same year that I first learned that a trans man existed. Oof. So, you know, it is a it was a tough childhood. It was a childhood that I didn't want for trans youth, but it is also one that I survived and that most of them will survive. And it breaks my heart that not all of them will and that, you know, we could get more people through it it better. But there is, you know, this is just my history of, you know, 40 years. There is a history of queer people finding a way to survive in even much, much darker times than I can even imagine, and hopefully much darker times than we're really looking at. And so I do try to help mostly not trans youth directly. Again, you talk about it does, you feel like you almost don't want to be interacting with trans youth because Mm. what will some horrible person say about that? and, And will that end up you know, hurting that trans youth more and and undermining their ability to tell their own story. But I do talk to parents and I do try to stress, get your kid through this. They can get through this. Don't give up, I guess. It is very hard to see that kind of contraction. It is. And I think like particularly for a lot of us from older generations, you know, myself included, who transitioned as adults and for whom the possibility or the conditions of possibility, you know, for a trans life, It was just like, it's not going to happen until you're grown, until you have some security, until you get somewhere else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think part of what has been genuinely interesting, but also challenging for for those of us is like watching this generation of young trans people who are like, I'm cool, I'm going to come out as a kid. I'm going to socially transition. And then some of them with supportive families and, and access are like transition during adolescence and then some of those are kids are already grown and are grown-ups and then like you know sometimes I look at them I'm like I'm not like a million years chronologically older than you but like you blow my mind and kind of turn me inside out um and so then to watch that group of people who in many ways their courage the force of what they were able to claim early on in life just makes me feel like a dinosaur to see them be the targets. I actually kind of do empathize with parents of trans youth. Taking care of and loving children in a hostile world is is already hard enough, but it's like genuinely like, what do you do if the state you live in is trying to forcibly detransition your kid? I mean, it's just like, these are these are pretty wild experiences to go through. Just, it's like a really startling feeling and a strange kind of despair for something that like you yourself didn't go through, even though you might also be trans. Does that make any sense to you? It does. I mean, there's so much hope in seeing kids who are supported by their parents as someone who, you know, my parents are not bad, but they would have had no idea how to support a trans kid in the 80s and 90s. The idea that we were kind of on the verge of that, and now we have to have to see that close is is such a tough one it's interesting as Mm -hmm. we were sitting here i was thinking how similar this is to some of the conversations that i had for my piece except i'm kind of in the opposite 
in the opposite position because everyone who I talked to, they wanted to to go to hope. They wanted to go. They yeah. wanted to reassure me that everything was going to be okay. And I'm feeling that now because we want to give that to each other as queer people. We don't want to kind of leave each other feeling down or leave each other feeling hopeless. But I think it's really important mm. to show cis people, to show straight yeah. people, this is what you, you're doing to us. And this is what you're letting the far right do to us. And, and you know, I really feel angry and I really feel like even if I can't stop it, I want to make you look at it. I want to make you see what you did. Toggling between this kind of in-group, out-group conversation is really, I think, an interesting fault line and just attention about where we spend our time, you know. Um, but I also want to move us towards hope because the folks you, you chatted with did as well. Um, there's a really interesting moment when I was reading towards the end of the piece, talking about or summarizing all of the various kind of local small scale things that, you know, the people you spent time with get up to. And so you say, quote, Cohen teaches young people to make comics. Katerin makes crafts, most recently stickers with a skull saying trans rights with proceeds going to Rainbow Railroad. Last October, I started a daily website monitoring and fact-checking anti-trans propaganda. These acts of visibility and defiance aren't done with the expectation that we can prevent the GOP agenda from destroying good people's lives out of malice. There, that's already baked in, already happening. Our role now is to describe the harm we're seeing without shying away or putting a happy, optimistic face on it to provide a record and beacon for those attempting to escape political oppression in our country and beyond, and to be there for one another. But tell me a little bit about just sort of your sense from talking to people, you know, who are making comics, making crafts, doing these kinds of small scale, kind of local kinds of projects with other people who are queer and trans. What was your kind of takeaway about the impact of that or just the value of that in this moment? Well, I love to tell this story and I didn't get it into the piece. Um, ah. But when I was a kid, when I was maybe maybe 11, there was this book on one of these bookshelves. My parents all had tons of books. It was a bookshelf like in the basement. It was called Diana and it was the story of a lesbian. I believe she was in England and she believed that she was a lesbian because her father always wanted you know, a boy. She believed all this kind of crazy <laughs> stuff, but she existed. She wrote this book. This book was somehow in my parents' bookshelf, and I read that. And so that moment of discovering that there is something like you and that it, that goes back, I think she was maybe in the 1920s or something, goes back quite a while, mm. um, I think is so powerful. And, you know, with the internet, it's going to be very difficult, <laughs> very, very difficult for them to to stop children from understanding that there are other people like them and that there are people who have gone there before and that there is a path. And I think that that is whenever I create anything is, is what I'm thinking mm -hmm. is some of this is going to get through. Some of this is going to reach the people who need it and, you know, to hell with the mainstream. We have always survived. We will always survive. And we can leave these little breadcrumbs and these little records for each other. And it's an act of love for, for the community, for other people to do that process. And for strangers. I mean, I think that's part of what's so beautiful about that story and about the fact that for a very long time, that's how a lot of people have by accident come into possession of something that startles and surprises you and sparks an idea, plants something in your mind that resonates. And 
And I think there's just a beautiful way for me that that dovetails with this piece overall where you were like, let me go talk to people who are, as of now, strangers to me and form a connection. And we can do that intentionally in our communities, in our families, in our organizing circles. Uh, and we can you know, think of that as part of the task that lies ahead, but also know that there are all these other audiences that you may never even encounter. And you know, there's a beautiful line in your in your piece that really resonates for me it's something i think a lot about one of the reasons that it's not it's not going to be acceptable to fantasize that we can create mm, solutions kind of you know practical solutions to anti-trans political violence in particular is like you you know the, these red states might be trying to push everyone out who is queer and trans but like even if they ever achieve that or if everyone managed to leave and go somewhere ostensibly better, it doesn't matter because queer and trans people will just appear every day at random in the general population. Every day someone wakes up and realizes, especially that they're trans. And so that's just part of the magic of how we socially reproduce without having to do it intentionally. Um, but for that reason, it really matters to kind of leave those nuggets out in the world because you never know you never know the impact you may have already had on people um, just in the way that meant for many of us the things that kind of prompted realizations were not ever what we were expecting in retrospect. And there's something to me kind of amazing. And ultimately, there's something about that that can't be tamed, right? Um, no one, no law can get rid of that, frankly. Um, but, it, but it really does mean like we have stuff we can be doing right now and doesn't always have to be so intentional as my political act is going to look like this. I mean, go do that stuff too, but like make weird art and leave behind your feelings, pour your despair into stuff, make stuff about your despair, put it out in the world because you never know who's going to pick it up uh, and make something of it in the future. And there's something about that feels uh, kind of getting close to hope. I feel like I'm contractually prohibited from saying I'm hopeful this month, but you know, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> How are you feeling kind of on the tail end of finally getting to write this piece? You know, when I first had the idea for the piece, I was really in a place of despair. And then, you know, nine months, 16 months later, whatever it was, I started a website to report on trans issues every single day. And that's not an act of someone who has given up. It's just I look into the future. I don't see the long arc of history necessarily leaving anywhere, but I say who am I going to be in this world that I didn't choose? And I can make a choice about that person and about the work that I'm doing that feels really meaningful. And I can let go of the idea that I can save everyone or that I can turn the tide back. The tide is going to do what it, it does, but I can still be, you know, that kind of stable rock that is still is still there. Well, we're all grateful for it. Um, <laughs> listeners, I really, really, really recommend you, you go and read Evan's piece. Don't Look Away from Queer Despair, which, like I said, is part of Outward's not-quite-pride series, so you can find that online. Um, that's all the time we have for this conversation. Obviously, there's so much more to say and think about, and I'm very curious to, to know if listeners relate to the sense of despair and also how they're um, making it do something this month and, and every month afterwards. Um, my guest has been Evan Urquhart. And that's it for this special Pride mini episode. Uh, you can get in touch with us, send feedback and, uh, on this conversation or others to outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter 
cut slate outward. June Thomas is our producer, and this month we're very grateful for help from Emily Cherish in producing these episodes. That's all for this June month, but uh, we'll be back in your feeds on July 19th. Stay gay and happy Pride, everybody. <laughs>